Dr. Alexei Yusuf trained in medicine in Syria, where he practiced medicine during the civil war, during which time the hospital he worked in was bombed. He then became the first Syrian to gain the prestigious Rhodes Scholarship at Oxford University and then started his PhD in clinical AI. He's also now started his MBA at the Harvard Business School. We talk about some of his research, which focuses on building electronic health records in low- and middle-income countries such as Syria, which has now garnered support from the WHO. We also talk about what it was about him and what approaches he used to achieve such tremendous success when living and working during the Syrian civil war. This is a really interesting interview. I hope you enjoy. What was it like practicing or training in medicine in Syria during a war? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it certainly wasn't an easy experience. Our hospital got bombed multiple times and I, I, I was in the hospital actually uh, when, when that happened. So certainly it was in, in, in many times a very stressful and difficult experience. Um, same, I mean, you, you need to imagine that it's a country in conflict, right? So, like, you, you don't have the necessities of, of electricity, like sometimes water. Like, the country is cut off from the from the international system. Really. Like, you cannot send money into the country or, like, receive money from outside. And if you want to do anything that relates to these applications or, like, international tests, you have to completely travel to another country. So, uh, f- funnily enough, I remember basically when I was doing, like, the TOEFL and the IELTS exams, I had to travel to neighboring Lebanon <laughs> to do them there because like nothing was available in Syria. So 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 certainly it was an experience that that helped me build a lot of resilience um, and that exposed me to taking risks. And I'll tell you why I think this is important. Um, so and, and why I say it, it exposed me to taking risks because I I had a very big dream. I knew that I wanted to work. I I wanted to have a massive impact on healthcare in the future. Um, I want to build the network resources and capabilities to do that impact. I, I want to really play a transformative role in healthcare. Um, but obviously, these opportunities were, by, n- not by any means, immediately available to me when I was medical student or medical resident there. So, 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 so I was basically in an environment that mandated that I need to take risks in order to to achieve or to position myself for achieving the goals that I wanted to achieve. So, so for example, I've done a lot of work on building capacity, started multiple organizations, uh, did a lot of research. So, So I did a lot of things outside kind of the comfort zone. And I was forced to do those things in, in some way or another because they were the steps that I needed to do to create the, op- the opportunities and optionality for myself. And so I think, I think this is very important because when you exist in, an op- in a system with limited opportunities, it creates this sort of pressure. And you need to think about it actually as a blessing because you learn most from times when you take risk. Like, I, I, I fundamentally believe that you learn the most from, from the times where you, where you take risk and drive yourself outside your comfort zone and do actions where you are absolutely accountable for the result. And, and this, I think, really maximizes your iterative learning cycle, right? And, 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 and so I, I, I think it was a good experience from the perspective that it forced me to take risk and made me much more comfortable with taking risk with doing things that are really untraditional with doing with exploring avenues that i 
that I'm not familiar with. But but at the same time, like as you can imagine, mostly it, it was a good a, a difficult experience. But overall, I think the, the the resilience, the grit that you get to build in these circumstances is very important. And the the comfort that you develop with handling uncertainty is is something that that is that is a really fundamental aspect of me today. And and it really helped me. Uh, be it on, on on my like educational endeavors or when I was starting companies. So so so, so really, I think it was a fundamental experience. If that makes sense. So Alex, I'm I'm quite interested in the concept of meritocracy and what makes people who they are. Um, and I was just wondering if you have any thoughts on what was it about yourself or your environment that meant that you know you went on to do these amazing things that you became the first Syrian Rhodes Scholar and everything else that you've done. Do you ever think about what it was, or you kind of answered this, but what it was about you or your environment that kind of led to that? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a really good question, and I think just a couple of words about like kind of um, my my background. But 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 before that, I don't think that I am special by any way. I fundamentally believe that you have you you have to be a a really good specialist and a good person. You have to work really hard you have to work smart, but fundamentally success is driven by having these capabilities, but being at the right place in the right time as well. So the luck aspect is something that I think is very important and I would never discount that. Uh, and, and certainly it, 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 it helped me a lot. Like I've, I've put tremendous effort to, to get to where I am and tr- tremendous sacrifices, but at the same time, the luck aspect was, was something important, right? My, my family and I like used to live in a small town in the north, in the north of north of Syria until 2014. Basically, we had to kind of relocate um, to, uh, to to a city called Latakia, basically where uh, where we we resided after 2014. And it was it was a little bit of a traumatic experience because basically, like we we had to 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 relocate because our town was t- taken over by uh, Al Qaeda affiliated extremists. So. I think during the during my medical education, really residency years in Syria, I um, I knew that I had this 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 massive ambition, this ma- massive dream that I want to go after, and I really did everything that I can to get there. Right, uh, meaning that I was really interested in research. I think, for example, we we did, we did, we didn't do enough research in in, in Syria. It, it was very underdeveloped for example, like ecosystem. And I started working on that, right? Like I kind of learned how to do research, uh, like assembled the team. We, we, we became one of the first really student teams to, to publish from, from Syria. So, so, so really it was, it was doing things that are entrepreneurial, but not in the sense of entrepreneurial starting a business for profit, but doing things that are untraditional, unconventional, new. Um, that was something that, that really helped me. And I think another thing is that I was really blessed to have very good mentors. I think I think having good mentors is is one of the most important things. So, really, I mean, when I was medical medical student, I, I reached to medical doctors, Syrian medical doctors abroad, abroad, trying to establish these connections. Um, I, I did some electives outside Syria, so, so so built some connections there, and and really it. Th- those people were so fundamental to, to to my trajectory and my journey. 
You know, when you set your ambition as something like I want to study at Oxford or, or whatever that is, could you take me through some of the concrete steps you take to achieve that? Obviously, you work hard and you mentioned some of the things that you do, but what are the really like pragmatic, uh, concrete steps, the things that you would do next? What kind of flow would you have? Yeah, no, mostly it's a good question. So I think an important factor is when you look at success in hindsight, the path seems linear. But in reality, the path is not linear at all. So, so I think it's very important to kind of to mention that Oxford was not my my only option. Like I I didn't have like the, the dream or goal that I want to study at Oxford and I want to become a Rhodes Scholar, right? Um, so, so basically, like I had the goal of being in a place that would give me a lot of opportunities in a very good educational institution, like one of the top. And that would give me the optionality to pursue a career on the intersection of innovation, finance, and healthcare. That would enable me to have a massive impact, right? So, so the, the natural question after that became, well, how can I get to this path, right? And, and, and it was to some extent a process, right? So you have to look like, I'm in Syria. Okay, so what are the opportunities that would be available for me as a student in Syria, right? It would be, for example, a couple of scholarships in the UK, in the US, a couple of schools that you can apply to. And I, meaning top schools, right? So, okay, fine. What do I need to do today to actually kind of be in a position that would allow me to do that application so that they, 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 they take me credibly, right? So you have to do a couple of tests. You have to build connections with mentors. You have to do some really interesting projects to, to demonstrate that um, you're passionate about making impact on healthcare. You're passionate about changing, changing like really the status quo. So, so, so essentially it was, basically kind of an optimization task right like you know that this is where you hope to be in the future you know where you are today the path between where you are today and the future is uncertain but you can understand and have really good visibility on what is the next step that you need to do and then you need to execute very well on that step and on the next one and have the grit and determination to go step after step right and again i think i think one of the the really key factors that, that I would stress out is, is building really good connections with mentors and, and having credibility, like building, building credibility with them, right? And learning from them, being really receptive to learning. Because I think, I think like I, I tend to like generalist thinking and always we tend to view the world and to view how we want to achieve things or how we want to get to a specific endpoint with with our own lens, which is inevitably biased, right? And inevitably lacks the experience of how to get there, right? Th that's one aspect. The other aspect is the path through which you'd get there, right? And I think it's always very important to kind of optimize how you think you will do it with what the reality requires and being very open to that optimization and being very open to iterate your beliefs, your approaches, your, your, your work capabilities, etc. right? And you can do that by trying and failing, which, I mean, one of, the, one of the most important things is becoming a student of failure, right? Like you learn most from failures rather than, rather than from successes. So, 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 so I think perhaps maybe one thing that I didn't mention, which is like really being, being comfortable with failure, being self-reflective enough to the degree that you, you are conf comfortable and confident with your own failure and you really look at it as a, a step on a success trajectory because no one who's, who's super successful hadn't had failure before. And I, and I can assure you that failure was like a key 
point on their trajectory. So, so, so that's that's another aspect. Earlier on, you mentioned a project in the Syrian hospital you're working at with electronic health records and bringing them there. I find that kind of interesting because I think even within you know the UK and the NHS, there's sometimes a bit of backlash against AI and health or digital health projects because people say, well, if on the wards there aren't enough computers, the printers don't work, then what's the point of bringing you know this kind of fancy technology over? We need to get the basics right. And the question is essentially, was that ever a challenge you faced when kind of doing these projects in Syria where you're thinking that, you know, we're working in a war zone and we can't even do the basics. So like, how are we going to do this next step? Sure. I mean, it's 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 a very good question. And j- just to clarify, so my thesis was on uh, rolling out a centralized electronic health record system using open source solutions. Um, WHO ended up backing this this proposal. And so basically implementation hasn't started yet, but fingers crossed it, it will start soon. And the idea is that this really goes to the fundamental belief whether you think that the future of healthcare is digital or not. Like I understand that the most immediate needs of healthcare in Syria are not through digitization, right? But at the same time, you cannot um, post digitization until you have met all the basic needs for two reasons first is that digital allows you digital gives you significant capabilities in actually addressing healthcare needs in low income countries uh, low and low middle income settings because for example like i can tell you countless cases of cancer patients who were treated in one hospital in syria they lost their records there they for example moved to another city they go to the physician who wants to start their treatment and he he has no clue of what what treatments were they on for example in in the previous hospital right and you can just scale that this is only one example another example is just keeping track of of spending or keeping track of healthcare services on a on a on a national or a regional level i mean this is this is very important like this is one of the basics right like a system where you cannot measure is a system that is inevitably will fail Right, because if you cannot measure, you cannot improve, and if you cannot improve, you will fail. Right. So, so I think the value of digital in in, in low resource settings comes comes from these basics. Like you don't have to implement something that is that is very complex. You, you don't necessarily have to implement like the most interoperable electronic health record system, like the most fancy, for example, like Epic or Cerner version. But you have to implement something basic that works and that that gives you the ability to address these uh, basic needs that you can solve with digitization. So, so, so this is one aspect. And, and, and really to summarize it, I think like digital can give you the ability to address a lot of healthcare needs in a system that is a resource, resource strained, for example, such as the system Syria or, or in, in other countries really. Um, the other thing is that you have to look at digital as an iterative process. Like we, we just don't come and say, and like today we will digitize and, tomorrow or like next year we have digitized, right? There is a massive learning curve across which like the whole healthcare system and it, its components have to travel, right? If you implement electronic health records in the hospital, like you have to train the staff. The staff has to become competent. You have to build health informatics capacity in the country, meaning that you're graduating computer scientists, but those computer scientists have never, for example, worked with an electronic, with, an, with a health informatics project, right? So, so, so you need to have like training and appropriate training for 
for, for people in, in the health informatics space, right? You have to have digitization within the different kind of components of a healthcare system, be it like on the ministry level, be it on the health insurers level, be it on like the different components, right? Um, and all of this takes massive time and you need to start from somewhere and, and start building those 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 blocks blocks one by one. So so really it is because of this this curve that you have to go through. I think starting early with basic version is very important. So while the argument that we need to address the basic needs is valid, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't start the digitization because also digitization can actually help us with that. Alex, this is purely for my own kind of curiosity. But the question comes up because when I was booking this interview, uh, I got forwarded to your PA. And it's the first time I've kind of come across someone, you know, around my age group having a PA. And the question is essentially, how do you kind of structure your work day or your work week? How do you make sure everything gets done? Can you kind of just go into some of the details of that? Yeah, no, thanks. Thanks, Musti. And I mean, I believe in outsourcing, like the most valuable asset that you have is your time and when you have an opportunity to outsource some of your tasks or s- some of the things that don't require massive thinking commitment from yourself maybe let's put it that way that are admin in nature then by all means do it and this is what i try to do so so, so, so really i mean I'm, I'm a huge believer in outsourcing like if you can outsource something do it I think maybe let, let me give you another way of like how I'm looking at it is you can approach it from the perspective of specialization, right? Like specialization improves efficiency in general, like be, be it how specific companies and in specific industries specialize in specific products to improve how efficient and to improve the quality that they produce or be it how countries also basically specialize in specific industries. So, so it's really a gen- like a generalist concept. And I think humans should also specialize even in how you manage your daily tasks. I mean, that's, that's what, I'm, what, 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 what I try to do. So, 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 so really, there, there is an element of, of outsourcing, which I think is very important. Um, the other thing is, and I've learned this from, from multiple projects, including from, from, from working in, in, in finance, I think process is very important knowing when you have to deliver something like a couple of weeks in advance, perhaps, or like a week in, in advance and setting up a working pace. Like, you know, that for example, on this day, you have to finish like this amount on the another day, you have to finish this amount and, and having and go, going through that process is important. Another thing that I found, I find personally helpful, but, but this is purely personal as well, having a specific structure to your day. So what I tend to do is like, I focus the most in the morning. So I have like a block of work of like four to five hours, like 5 a.m. to 10 a.m., for example, every day um, that I basically block for tasks that require the most kind of mental processing from me. And I think this is really important because in daily lives, we are exposed to a continuous barrage of notifications, communications, and that really can throw you off. If you're if you're if you're if you're working on a on a task that requires high high concentration, um, so 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 basically I I try to to have these compartments of, of of time that's really blocked for high concentration activity. And last thing that I would say, and I'm not doing the best at this, like so I'm trying to improve on this, is 
really paying attention to your wellness. I mean, I think today we're, we're under massive pressure to, to work very long hours, to work very hard uh, to, to achieve the goals that we want. And I think just just maybe taking a little bit of time, like it doesn't have to be a large, large, large amount of time, but just understanding what works for you in terms of wellness um, and how can you take care of your mental health is something that's very important. And that can be very, very different for different people. So for me, for example, I find that like sometimes going for a morning run uh, or for example, having a meditation session in the morning, that's that, that's like great. I, I feel awesome after it, right? So, so that's what worked for me, right? Uh, and other things can work for other people. So I, I think one of the interesting um, analogies that one of the people that I, that I have massive respect for told me, and, and that person is Alex Dibilius, who was the ex-chairman, global chairman of Goldman Sachs, and he's a cardiac surgeon by training. So, so he gave me this analogy that a bird cannot fly with one wing. So basically, if you consider one wing your professional capabilities, the other wing is like your wellness and how, how, how well you, you are, how able you are to execute on your best capability. So, 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 so you have to pay attention to the professional aspect of your life, but you also have to pay attention to kind of like the personal um, kind of wellness aspect of, of your life, be it like through doing activities or like spending time with family, et cetera. So that, that's, that's really subjective. Along your journey, have there been any particular books or other resources that you've read that you'd uh, recommend looking into? Sure. No, that's, that, that's a great question. And um, I guess my first recommendation would be a book called Bulletproof Problem Solving. And, and why I found the book very interesting is because it speaks to the skill of problem solving. Like if you look at whatever you do in life, you will have to problem solve, right? And developing a consistent skill and a solid approach to problem solving can apply to anything in life. So I think like it's very important to build these fundamental skill blocks, and I view like problem problem solving and and, and this book in particular as as super valuable uh, in, in in helping to do that. Um, the other book is um, How to Measure Your Life uh, by Clay Christensen, um, who was professor at uh, HBS, and it speaks about uh, the importance of understanding what is your intrinsic motivation like so many people in life go after the extrinsic motivation alone uh, be it money prestige whatever right but if you want to do something big and if you want to go on a career track that's really difficult external motivation is not enough you need to have an internal motivation another way to say it is you need to understand what is your mission and you, you need to be connected to that mission because that is the only thing that would power you through dif difficult moments across your uh, professional trajectory, which you will inevitably face. I hope you enjoyed that episode. You can find all my links by going to bigpicturemedicine.co.uk. And Alex actually hosts his own podcast called Physicians Off the Beaten Path, which covers the trajectories of medics who've done incredible things outside of clinical medicine. You can find it at potbppodcast.com.